on, on Friday, uh, because it's not part of our normal family rhythm, uh, we were telling the boys that it was time to get dressed and we were going to make our way to the Good Friday service. And uh, Tiago, our youngest, uh, then, then looked up at me and, and asked, like, what's this service that we're going to? And I explained to him that the church was going to get together and we were going uh, to sit around as a community and we were going to remember Jesus dying. And he looks me in the eyes and says, that sounds boring. And I think the response was kind of like, yeah, I, I guess it is. <laughs> but, it, but it, I mean, from a seven-year-old, six-year-old's mind, just trying to wrestle with, like, you're just going to get around, and you're going to talk about death? <laughs> when, when we read the opening of John chapter 20, John presents to us this, this incredible intersection that's taking place. It'll come up on the screen, and, and you'll see the way that he starts, starts things off for us. He says, it was the start, or early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. And, and he introduces us that this is the intersection of the resurrection, that it it's, starts in this bleak place this unexpected place. And if we were to sit here and, and just sit with these words for a while and just realize the impact of them, that yes, it is the start of something new, but even though it's the start of something new, we recognize that there is still this context of darkness that, that resides there. And, and as you sit with these words long enough, I believe that what John is, is doing here in this moment is that he's provoking our imaginations. See, when, when the author John writes the, his, his letter to us, and when you read in John chapter 1, you'll see that where he takes us is a connection to the book of Genesis. He starts his letter with the same words that the book of Genesis starts, in the beginning. And when you sit with these words here in John chapter 20, you find that there is an intentional parallel that's taking place. You find that, that as he's describing this scene here outside of the tomb, that I believe that's what is meant to come into our minds is the opening letters of all of the scripture. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. And darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Now, in the Hebrew imagination, the deep waters were the embodiment of their nightmares. The deep waters were, were the, the symbol, the, the metaphor, the driving image of chaos that it was the space that was not habitable for life. It was the space that, that untamable beasts lived in. And so you can, even, you can even have that in your mind as you look over the pages of Scripture, and maybe your mind goes to the book of Jonah, and you think about the fact that when he's thrown into the deep waters there, he's consumed by this giant fish. And there's that picture of the tomb. It's this picture of Jonah being swallowed up by chaos, by evil, by, by, 
by, again, the, the space that, do, that life does not exist. When you think of the disciples late at night rowing in the lake, it's there in, in, in pitch black that a storm overwhelms them. And it's there that, that they're tossed by the chaos of the storm. Again, and for the Hebrew imagination, it's the space of saying that they were being swallowed up by their worst nightmare. And it's there in Genesis chapter 1, we are introduced to the voice of the Lord. Let there be light. That's where the start, story starts. And so here in John 20, again, he's provoking us to understand that God meets us in our worst nightmares. God meets us in the places of chaos where there does not seem to be life. While there is still darkness, that's where the new week begins. That's where God shows up. And it's in that context that Jesus arrives into the scene and he's meant to, it's meant to stir us to this place of hope that in our places of darkness, this is where life begins. Mary starts in the dark. Mary's story here starts in the dark. What we, what we know is that, that she comes to the tomb, and as she arrives at the tomb, she's just overwhelmed by the pain of the situation. You, you, you get this understanding that, that from, from the confessions of her mouth that she doesn't have any understanding or she's completely confused about what is taking place here in this scene. What we do know is that she's arrived here while it's still dark, with a band of other women. The reason that we know that is the way that she then goes and speaks to, to John and to Peter. She says, we don't know where they've laid him. They, it, it, lets, it clues us into the fact that she's not alone, that she's arrived at the tomb with a group of women. And when you read through other accounts, particularly like the book of Luke, you'll see that it's a group of women that arrive at the tomb here very early in the morning. What we're also being introduced to here is that they're arriving early in the morning while it's still very dark because on Friday night, they didn't have any time to really care for Jesus' body the way that they wanted to care for Jesus' body. And the reason that they weren't able to do that is because the Sabbath was about to start. The Jewish community, I mean, it is, it is a staple to the community. It is a command from the Lord that they would remember the Sabbath. It was a space in which they were meant to remember that they could rest in the Lord. And what I find about this scene is that there's so much friction that's here, is that they, this band of women, have put all of their hope in Jesus. They, they had believed that he would be their deliverer, their Messiah, their Lord. And, and he dies, but they still honor the Sabbath. And I try to put myself in that place trying to figure out how I would feel about honoring the Sabbath 
after my hope just died. Would I do it? Their world collapsed, but for some reason, they still have this rhythm, this habit of staying in orbit around the Lord. And I think here is just this subtle argument for us of how important it is that we develop these habits in our lives of staying in orbit around the Lord. And the encouragement isn't read your scripture and, and, uh, and have regular times of prayer and keep the Sabbath because it will keep you as a good Christian. But I think that what we're developing in our lives is this ability to stay in orbit around the Lord, to taste and see that he is good because there will be seasons in our life when it feels like darkness is winning. But when we have developed the habits of staying in orbit around the Lord, it will help us to continue to pursue him even when we're in darkness. One of the foundational lessons in my life as, as I began to follow Jesus is I heard the testimony, the story of, of a young widow in the church community that I was a part of. And she told the story of when her husband died. Disease had taken his life, and they were, they were young, and they had young kids. And the story that she told was that how much pain she was in, and she couldn't even get herself to read the Bible at this season in their life. There was just so much darkness. There was just so much difficulty about this season of life. And what she said has forever stood with me. She said, all I could do in that season of my life was to sit down, grab the Bible, hold it for a little bit. And then I would put it back down and go on with my day. And it was this story of this friction. It was the story that I think that we can find ourselves in so often in life. We're just like we're left in the space of where we're disappointed by God, but there's still something within us that compels us to pursue him, even though he's the one that we've been left disappointed by. And I think that, that, that Mary's story is all of our story in, this space of, in these spaces of life that we find ourselves in where it's where it's like, God, I don't know what you're up to. I, don't, I can't make sense of what's happening in the world around me, but there's still something within me that is compelled to draw near to you. And that's the way that we're introduced to Mary in this story. While it's still dark, well, she doesn't know what's going on, and she's deep in pain, in sorrow, and in confusion. She still makes her way towards Jesus. It says that, that at this point, she doesn't, she doesn't go into the tomb. She doesn't really explore. She's not 
really trying to figure out what's like really happening in this moment. All that she can get herself to do is in this moment is turn, and she, she runs back home or back to where she knows John and Peter are at. And she, she finds John and Peter, and she tells them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and when we don't know where they've laid him. And, and we're told by John... It's a first-hand account because he's the one that, that writes this account to us. It says that, that he and Peter run towards the tomb. And I love the description of it because twice within this account, John tells us that he outran Peter. Like, put it in the Bible, people will forever know it, right? It is, it is this in, incredible description there. But I don't, I don't think that John's trying to be prideful. I don't think that he's boasting here. Right, because when you look at the story of the disciples all throughout the gospel accounts, you, it's this grand adventure of them missing the point. They're constantly arguing with each other. They're constantly rebuking people that Jesus wants to bless. Like John himself at one point wants to call down fire from heaven and, and consume these people that he's not getting along with. And there are these other moments in Scripture where, where the disciples, John being one of them, is off to the side arguing about who is the greatest. I'm the best. No, I'm, I'm greater. But I don't think that's what's happening here because what you'll see take place is that as John is describing that he ran to the tomb, there's actually this layer of vulnerability and honesty and humility that are in John's words. Because though he arrives at the tomb first, he doesn't go in first. Peter goes into the tomb first. And I think what, what John is actually highlighting by the fact that he was faster than Peter, that he was quicker than him, is that he shows up, but he hesitates. But Peter shows up. So, so it's this way to emphasize, I got there first, but Peter saw it first. And it's also, in, in John's words as he's explaining this to us, he also then goes on to tell us, like in that moment, there was something about the way that we saw the linens laid out, right? You can kind of conclude, like, we, we realized that it wouldn't have been a grave robber because what grave robber would take the body and not take these expensive linens? And what grave robber would actually take the time to fold the laundry and just leave it there? Right? He said, there's something about the scene that caused belief within me, and it's, it's just, I just find it so rad that, that John also pairs that by saying, I believed, but I didn't yet understand Scripture. And, and everything about the way that John is writing this story to us, he, he's connecting with us. That listen, like there's, there's something within us that is compelled by Jesus, but we don't have it all figured out. Like we're in darkness, but, but the light is dawning. The lights are coming on. We're kind of, we're figuring it out. And, that's, and so that's what happened. They, they see this, this scene, and it says John and Peter leave, and then here's Mary. She arrives back on the scene. Maybe the, the way that it plays out, we don't really know. Mary runs to the house, and John and Peter run to the tomb, and then Mary just slowly makes her way back to the tomb. Because what we, we know here is that John and Peter have left, and Mary is standing outside of the tomb. Do you see her posture? 
The, the words by John are so intentional. She was outside, and she was weeping. She's overcome by pain. She's overcome by confusion. She's overcome by just the just sheer loss here. But she's close. She's so close. And in this space, you see the movement of her body begin to, 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 to mirror like the rising of the sun that's taking place. Like as she's, she's getting closer to the tomb, she's getting closer to the good news of the risen Jesus. And at that same time, right, it's later in the day, it's like the, the, the sun is rising over her. There have been two times in my life that I've gone out of my way to see a sunrise. One, one was in college. Um, I just got a group of guys together, and we were living in L.A., and it was, hey, let's just get in our car tonight, and let's drive to the Grand Canyon, and let's watch the sunrise over the Grand Canyon. The other was on a vacation with, um, with Larissa and Justice. Tiago had, wasn't, wasn't born yet, and um, I, I love, love nature documentaries. And in Planet Earth, um, just David Attenborough was narrating about Mono Lake. It's up around Mammoth. And as he was narrating about Mono Lake, I was just like, that's in California. Like, I just was, I wanted to see Mono Lake. And we were on vacation around June Lake, which was nearby. Um, we were staying in a cabin, and I told Larissa, I just, I, just, I want to get up early tomorrow morning and I want to find my way over to Mono Lake, and I want to watch the sunrise. And I was just there by myself. And if you don't know about Mono Lake, it is, it's this lake where there's no outflow from the lake. So as this, the only way that the, that the water makes its way out of the lake is by evaporation, which means that there's just so much minerals and, and an alkaline that's just left here. Mono Lake is three times saltier than the ocean. And, and when you're there, there's just flies everywhere. It's just, and, and it's, and at very early in the morning when it's, when it's pitch black, it just looks like a tomb. It just looks like there's, there's these pillars, like these salt kind of pillars that are just all over the place. And you're just sitting there, and it just looks like, you just look around and goes, this is absolutely barren. Like, it just looks like a wasteland. There looks nothing appealing to it when you're sitting there at night. But then when the sun breaks through, man, I was left speechless. It was one of the most incredible vistas that I have ever seen. There was just something about the light breaking in on this tomb-like space. You'll see a picture of Mono Lake that doesn't really, I mean, it's a beautiful picture, but this is like these pillars are everywhere along the shore of the lake. It's this beautiful space. I think about Mary, and you could see her posture changing. What we're told is that she's Stoops down 
and she peers in. It's like she's, she's, you see her almost like squatting into the mud, into the earth, and she's getting closer into the empty tomb, and she's, she's kind of like crawling in to this space. And as she does so, she peers in, and, and messengers from heaven are there. That as she looks in, what she takes notice is that there's, there's two figures that are in there. There's angels that are clothed in white, and, and, they, announce, and, they, and they, they respond to her, and they say, Woman, why are you crying? I don't, I don't think the angels were indifferent to the pain of Mary. I don't think that it was like, I'll be honest, like sometimes the way that I've responded to my boys, why are you crying? There's nothing to cry about. There's no crying in baseball, right? Like that it wasn't, it wasn't this like aggressive or callous or indifferent to the pain that was there kind of a why are you crying kind of statement. But man, it's, it's when you read this, I, I, it's these spaces that I would love to actually hear the tone and texture by which the words were, were spoken to Mary. But I imagine what they were doing was trying to, 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 to show Mary that there was a different way that she was meant to be viewing this empty tomb. Do you realize there's two vantage points that are at play here? Is that here's Mary and she's looking into the empty tomb and she, what she sees is just the missing body of Jesus. But if you, if you flip around and, you, and you're standing with the vantage point of the angels, very likely what they're seeing is Mary and right behind her, Jesus. Because we're told right after this, she turns and there's Jesus right there. So it makes sense then that the angels in this moment turn and they look at Mary and they see Jesus. And the question would naturally be, why are you crying? He's right there. He's right there. A quick aside, friends, sometimes we just need friends in our lives that have a little bit of a different of a vantage point where when we can't see Jesus, they are able to have faith on our behalf to say, look, he's right there beside you. He's right there beside you. And in this moment, while Mary is saying, I, I don't, they've taken, they've taken the Lord's body and I don't know where they've laid him. And John does this often, where, it, where he'll have a statement here by someone where they're saying something that is a whole lot more revealing than they actually realize what they're communicating. Because what, what Mary doesn't know when she says they've taken the Lord is she doesn't realize that the they who have taken the Lord's body is the one triune God. They're the ones, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the ones that have moved Jesus' body. But here in this moment, Mary is just filled with, with tears in her eyes. And it says that she turns and there's Jesus standing there in front of her. And he asked the same questions. He asked the same question, woman, why are you crying? 
But he adds another question. Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? And as readers of this account, it's meant to be a question that we all ask of ourselves. Who are you looking for in life? Because what John is, is purposely doing is painting a picture for us is that Mary's statements are constantly, they've taken the Lord's body, they've taken the Lord's body. What we do know is that she's looking for the Lord. but she needs a greater understanding of who the Lord is that she is looking for. There needs to be more depth to her understanding of who the Lord is. Mary, you're looking for the Lord, but the one you're looking for is greater than you realize. He's stronger than you realize. He's more powerful than you realize. And, man, look, this, this, this story is written in a way so that we would admire Mary, so that we would appreciate her, her postures, we would appreciate her affection, her fierce love for Jesus. Because you imagine that in this space, what, what, the way that she responds is that she turns to Jesus and she, she mistakes him for the gardener. And so she then says to him, look, if you're the one that took his body, just tell me where it's at, and I'll go and get him. And it's kind of like this irrational statement, like how was she going to go able to like pick up a dead body and carry it back into the tomb? If I marry... And the person that's standing in front of me, I think might have just stolen the body of the most important person in my life. I wouldn't be so calm and gracious. <laughs> but, but she just, she's just here and she's so gracious and she's so kind and she's just so patient. And what's on display for us is just this desperate love, this deep love for Jesus. Just tell me where his body's at. I'll go get it. She's not looking to be, to be vindictive. She's not looking to, to hurt this, this stranger in her eyes. She's just like, just tell me where he's at. And then in this space, it's one word. Jesus looks at her and says, Mary. And the one who said, let there be light, speaks her name. And in that moment, it is just full illumination. In this moment, the lights come on for Mary. There is something so profound and so powerful about God knowing her name. There's just, there's just a, a, a level of 
of connection, of relationship, of familiarity. I mean, all of us around this room, we've, we've been in that moment, that space in which we realize that God knows our name, that he's just intimately aware of who we are. There's just something about the way that he stops in this moment and just says, Mary. And in this space, she just cries out to him, Rabbanai! <laughs> just this ecstatic joy that takes place. And, 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 and the way that it's described is that she, she grabs onto him. And in this space, Jesus' words are actually a little bit, like they can be, a little mysterious to us. Because what, what Jesus says here in this space is he looks at her and he says, don't cling to me. Don't hold on to me. And that may feel a little bit strange. Like why in the world would Jesus say, don't hold on to me? It's because what's happening here in this moment, it's like what was being revealed to us is that, that Mary lost Jesus and she's never going to lose him again. So what she does is just hold on to him. I am not letting you go. And so Jesus' words to her are pastoral, and, 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 and they're meant to shepherd and teach her. Like, you don't have to fear anymore. You're not going to lose me. You're not going to lose me. I'm with you. And it's meant to be this assurance for all of us in which we recognize nothing will separate us from the love of God. And then he speaks these words to her. And this is, this is for me like this, this climactic kind of moment in the story in which he tells her, don't cling to me, but go. The opening of of the book of Genesis is that the Spirit of God hovers over the deep waters. It's darkness. But this is the setting in which he is going to bring everything into order. And over the pages, or over the words and paragraphs of Genesis chapter 1, you find that the light is dawning and that God is bringing everything into order. And, and the, the end of the creation account is of a humanity that's planted in a garden and they're endowed with the divine calling. Let's rule together. Let's reign together. Let's be in partnership with one another. And John intentionally weaves this story for us so that we would see that though it, it starts in darkness, and he speaks a word, says the name Mary, and it's a light shines and revelation is brought. Understanding of who he is is brought into this moment. And John intentionally tells us that Jesus is seen as a gardener. And what he's letting us here know in this moment is that the setting that we're now in is a garden. 
And it's here in this space with feet in a garden that Mary calls Jesus rabbi. Is the words of, of, of relationship, of discipleship, of partnership. It is a profound statement from the writers of the gospel accounts that Mary is the first witness of the resurrection and that she is framed as a disciple of Jesus and that she is the first one that is going to go preach about the resurrection that she is the one that's going to go to the disciples and she's going to be the one that teaches them about Jesus it's this profound statement that just honors Mary with such a divine calling placed upon her everything about this story is about the story of new creation. God returns us back to the garden. And with feet planted in the garden, he speaks purpose over our lives. He speaks calling over us. Partner with Partner with me as the word of this new creation is going to go out into the rest of the world. And this is the movement that God longs to do in all of our lives. That he would meet us where we're at. In our spaces of darkness, in our spaces of disappointment, of confusion, of doubt, wherever we find ourselves at the start of this new week, God meets us where we're at. And he gives us greater and greater clarity of who he is. And then he gives us, he gives us a calling. Partner with me. Partner with me. Church, let me pray for us. Father, would you, would you meet this community of people where they're at? Whatever the stories are that reside here in this space, whatever, whatever circumstances and seasons of life people find themselves in. I pray that they would see a great light shine over their lives. I pray that this community of people would know what it is to have your radiant face, your countenance shining upon them. I would pray that they would know the depths of your love for them. So whatever space that they find themselves in, whatever uh, disappointment might have visited their lives or whatever things that they might be wrestling with or, or are struggling with today, Lord, that you would speak to them and that we would all collectively know that you are greater. You are stronger. You are more powerful than our worst nightmares. And I pray that this community of people would, would have greater and greater awareness of who you are. 
I pray that what would happen is that the weeks and months ahead for this community of people would be that you are, are pastoring us into your presence. May we be a people that know what it is to de just delight in you. That we would spend time with you and that as we do so, that there would just continue to be within us this fire, this passion, this desire to know you more. Constantly reveal to us who you are. And Lord, I also pray that this community of people would, would know your calling upon our lives. That we would know what it is to have your Holy Spirit upon us and, and sending us out into this world so that we might be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Would we be a people that, that find that you are using us in powerful and profound ways to see your kingdom being established here on earth. Would you, Lord, I pray, take us even this week out of, out of our comfort zones. Would you, would you constantly, would your Holy Spirit constantly be provoking our hearts, reminding us of your hand upon our lives. Maybe a word that may just constantly be spoken over us would just be this, this calling that says, partner with me. Join me in this work of seeing the light shine in the dark. Lord, thank you for the new life that we have in you. And Lord, we really do pray that we would honor you with every space of our lives. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Church, before you go, just a few things I would uh, love for you uh, to, to know about, some things that are taking place uh, in the life of our community. On April 18th, we're launching um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's an eight-week course in which we really do... Uh, believe that that the Lord is going to lead us into below the surface change in our lives that we would learn what it is to spend time with him and see him do just a good deep work of transformation um, in every space of our lives so definitely encourage you to be a part of that on April 19th or 20th what's the 20th sorry I get the dates all mixed up, but April 20th, we're going to be launching a three-week course that's on, on spiritual journaling. Uh, it's going to be held here on this campus, and um, it'll be a space for a community of people to come together and know what it is to, to, to spend time with Jesus through the practice of journaling and sharing those journal entries with one another and uh, be coached and, and pastored uh, through that. 